Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verse 23 to 26. But while we're looking there, I'm going to also... uh, Well, you you can follow along with me also in, in Exodus and Genesis. I'll be in some of those passages too because... Background information is needed for these passages, if, especially if you've never heard them before, you've never read the book of Hebrews, you, know, you don't know anything about the Old Testament or about the life of Moses. It becomes important for you to use your Bible to know where those things are and um, use your sword. Learn how to use your sword, all right? Because the Word of God is referred to as the sword of the Spirit, and so learn how to use that. And that's that's usually mentioned as a a short dagger. So that's close combat with the enemy uh, in the Ephesians passage. All right, so Hebrews chapter 11. um, I'm going to read the passages and then uh, verses number 23 to 26. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the privilege to hear the Word of God and then to have it explained, Lord. Please weld it upon our hearts and in our memory so we don't forget the teaching of what it means, how it looks to live by enduring faith so we can mimic the same and follow in the steps of a whole bunch of people who have gone before us and are now in your presence. Help us to be found faithful, Lord, by understanding what it means to be faithful. In Christ I pray, amen. So in the honor roll of faith, which I've been talking about and preaching about these weeks, we have seen God's faithful believing, putting their faith into action, displaying to us what faith is and what faith does. Biblical faith, if you look in the Word of God, you'll find that biblical faith is alive. It's, it's full of movement. It's full of action, conviction, struggle, decisions, and choices. And you see, once you start growing in the faith, you start developing deep convictions in your heart based on the Word of God, based on the promises of God, and every day that passes... You and I are making decisions based on those convictions, our convictions from what God is teaching us. The choices that we make are in direct relation to our commitment to please and honor God. Either we're going to please and honor someone else, ourselves, or we're going to please and honor God. Well, a life of faith is learning how to please and honor God. So you see the Holy Spirit is leading you and I to include the Lord's will in our decisions. 
which you did not consider before. I did not consider them before I became a believer, before I got saved. I didn't even care about God's will, even though I thought I did, because I didn't even know what it was. But once you know what it is, you want to do it. Is there a struggle in that? Absolutely. But God gives you the strength to do it. See, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, then you need to endure by faith. Now, how does that look in real life? What does an enduring faith actually do? Well, the life of Moses and the Exodus generation can help us answer those questions. The portion of Scripture we are examining today display actually five instances of faith from the life of Moses. Today I'll just cover two of them. Moses is definitely a major player in God's plan of redemption. And it may be that some of the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews were ready to forsake Christ. They were ready to forsake Christ for the safety and the security of a religious system called Judaism. Because Judaism included Moses. It included the God's commandments. It included the sacrificial system. There was organization and familiarity with that religious system, and some of his Jewish audience were ready to throw it in and pack it in and say, listen, we, we believe in Moses, we'll just follow Moses. But what the author of Hebrew does here is he paints Moses as one of the greatest examples of faith in Christ. Puts a little bit of a uh, problem in their theology. Wait a minute. In other words, he says Here, if you follow Moses' example of faith, it will lead you straight to Christ, straight to Jesus. So so you have a real problem if you're going to forsake Christ for some religious system that you feel comfortable in. And just as Jesus said to the multitude in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, and you may take your Bibles and turn there, John 6, remember what Jesus said to them. They were following him. They they saw some of his miracles. And so they were kind of excited about Jesus. And then Jesus said to them in verse 45 of John chapter 5, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. In other words, this group of people that were following Jesus at this time were setting their hope and putting all their stock in Moses alone. But look at what Jesus says to them in verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Matter of fact, Moses wrote a lot of the Old Testament. So if you forsake Christ, you have to forsake Moses, even though you may claim Moses, or the Old Testament, or Judea, or whatever it is. See, Christ is saying, no, if you listen and follow Moses, it will lead, Moses will lead you straight to me. And then he says in verse 47 of John 5, but if you do not believe his writings, 
how will you believe my words? See, you cannot have Moses and not have Christ. They go together. They're in God's plan of redemption. Moses was in the link, the chain link that God has designed from the beginning of time until the cross. So, let's examine five or two of the five acts of faith in life of Moses. Today, um, I just want to un- uncover two. Notice that the, the first instance of enduring faith in the life of Moses is, and what we learn from it, here's the first thing we learn from his enduring faith. A faith that endures overcomes fear. Now look at verse number 23 of Hebrews chapter 11. We're back in Hebrews 11. And notice what it says in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the point of faith for Moses' parents were they did not they were not afraid of, of the governmental authority over them. They, they weren't afraid of that structure. So Moses' parents are unnamed in Scripture. In, in this passage of Scripture, they may represent all the common people of faith. And it was their faith in action that is highlighted in verse number 23. The action of their faith is that fear did not deter them from carrying out the will of God. Now, what was the king's edict? Because if we're going to find out what they actually weren't afraid of doing, then let's find out what it is to see how much it would cause fear in, in, in a government decree put upon the people. So for, for the information for this, turn back to Exodus chapter 1, and I want you to notice plan A of the king of Egypt. Here's plan A. Now, I do want to remind you that within the community of Egypt, Israel, of course, was living. They were now under slavery. They were slaves of the Egyptians, right? It's been a long time. It's been 300, probably 90 years, and or maybe even a little bit more, and so they are beginning to think, wait a minute, some of the prophecies about God delivering us is going to happen. And this is kind of trickling up to the authorities of Egypt. And so what does the Egyptian king do? Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, the women who usually deliver the children of the Hebrews, one of whom was named Shepharah, and the other was named Puah, And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon their birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, you shall, then she shall live. All right, so here it is. That's a pretty, pretty strong edict. And so you could see how it would cause fear that if you did not put the Hebrew child to death, in turn, you would be put to death. So, that kind of edict can cause great fear. But notice the midwives, what their response is in chapter 1 in verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God. That's key. 
and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. Look at their answer, verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And then in verse 21, because the midwives feared God. He established household for them. See, that's what was going on. So, of course, the king of uh, Egypt says, all right, that plan didn't work. Plan B. Look at verse 22 of, of Exodus 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who was born, you are to be cast into the Nile, and every daughter you shall keep alive. He says, oh, so that's what they decided to do. And so every child that was born, no matter who saw or knew about it, they were to cast the baby into the Nile River. That's pretty strong. Now, Moses' parents clearly and deliberately disobeyed the Egyptian king's edict in lieu of obedience to the greater king, to the king of heaven, to the God who made the covenant promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In fact, that's what he says in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, where it says, so God heard their groaning. The groaning of being under oppression, Egyptian oppression and slavery. And it says in verse 24 of Exodus 2, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. See, the reason for hiding their son. That's the parents of Moses. Was according to most translations in our Hebrew Bibles, because he, they saw that he was a beautiful child. You probably have that in your, your Bible, your translation, something like it. But it would be more helpful to know that this Greek term is a general one, and it could mean, it does mean, favored, approved, and it also includes attractiveness, but unusual. And so, one translation... Translation says it like this. They saw that God had given them an unusual child. See, the point is this. That the parents of Moses hid the child because they saw an indication that God would do great things through this child. Now, with that in mind, also, we cannot forget the fact that the prophecy spoken of Israel being under bondage in Egypt for 400 years so that they were aware that they were close to the time when God would intervene to deliver them. They were close to that time. In fact, again, look back to Genesis chapter 15 because God said to Abram, before he even changed his name to Abraham, before there was a, uh, Isaac and a Jacob, before there was a Moses, long before this happened, God said to Abram in Genesis 15, look what he says. Chapter 15, verse 13, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that was not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 
400 years. This was long, hundreds of years before it ever happened. And so God told him a long time before it ever happened. I don't have the math on that one yet, but it was a long time. God let them know this is going to happen to them. This is before Jacob moved to uh, Egypt during the drought. That's why they moved there. This was before all that. And so Exodus tells us, too, that now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's a long time. Not not only did they have that promise from God, but they also had, remember, from uh, Hebrews 11.22, the bones of Joseph. Remember that when he was dying, He made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. How did Joseph encourage his brethren to remain faithful to the promise, even being under bondage for that period of time? Well, he said in Genesis, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here. You'll take them out of Egypt. You'll do that. So after 300 years, And 90 years in Egypt, Moses is born around 1530 B.C., in which God provides a deliverer, and Moses remembers Joseph's requests, recorded in Exodus 13, and brings his bones out of Egypt. He remembers that. I covered that last time. So you see, Moses' parents were not afraid because they were emboldened by the fear they had toward God. They were emboldened by the anticipation of the promises. They were emboldened by those things where they could say, King, we don't have to listen to you because we are listening to a greater king, a higher authority, an authority over you. And our God has told us these things are going to happen and we're ready for them to happen. So we're not listening to you because this child right here... Moses, meaning to be taken out of the water, he's going to be the one that will deliver us. God's going to do great things with this child. And so, if you look at Genesis 15, verse 14, it says this, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So, in other words, that God was going to hold judgment upon Egypt at a particular point. And when they came out, they were going to come out with a lot of possessions, a lot of gold and silver that the Egyptian people were actually going to give them. And, of course, that would serve a purpose later on in the wilderness where, of course, that would be melted down and used to build the tabernacle to worship God. So you see that, remember, fearing God is appropriate. It's an appropriate response And it is in line with a faithful response. To fear God, Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of knowledge. To fear God is to stay away from sin. To fear God is to know what He wants us to do. To fear God is to know what He's going to do next. See, biblical faith fears God. And so we overcome fear by faith in God and His promises. All other fear would be less than nothing than the fear that we ought to have for the great 
and almighty God in whom we serve. So, through their suffering, their faith did not get weakened. Through their suffering, their faith became strong. So strong that the powerful edicts of the king couldn't even push it over and move it. See, that's what God's going to do even in our lives. So, in a very real way, it's going to be through the trouble that we experience in our life that brings about a strong faith as we respond in the correct way. You see, God must exercise sovereignty over the evil hearts of men to fulfill his promises, to carry out his will. Now, just thinking of that, look at Acts chapter 7 and verse number 18 because it gives us a bit of information that is important to show where I'm going next. Acts 7 verse 18, it says this. It's giving the life of Moses. And then it says this in verse 18 of Acts 7. Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. In verse 19, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. So a king rose up who knew nothing about the exploits of Joseph, that's hard to believe. But that's what happened. But see, this is the point I want to make. God allowed that to happen. Why? Remember when Israel went to Egypt? They were going from a drought to a place of plenty, right? Well, probably, according to the math, they spent around, Joseph was still alive for around, maybe 30 more years, he, uh, or maybe 70 more years while the people were there. So for about 70 years, they lived in the best part of Egypt. They had the best land. They were multiplying there. The Pharaoh loved them there at that particular point, and they were just like living like kings in the land. Who wants to leave when it's like that? So here's the mystery that none of us can adequately wrap our minds around. You say, what is this? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the inscrutable, past-finding-out wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God that we cannot follow. We don't understand. We think we understand what God is doing, and he takes a left turn and loses, and we lose the clarity of the way he's doing things. Yet, that is what God has done. He used this evil king of Egypt. In fact, God Almighty turned Pharaoh's heart to hate his people and turned the Egyptians against the children of Israel. God allowed his people to suffer greatly under Pharaoh. In fact, the Psalms says this, he turned their heart to hate the people to deal craftily with his servants. Psalm 105, verse 25. See, why has God done this, and why does God still do this? Before I get back to the text in Hebrews, this background information is important. Well, the only adequate answer is this. It is the only way for God 
to make it so his people can be delivered. Just, just again, remember that the children of Israel came out of Egypt in a time of great blessing. So the people prospered in the best part of the land of Egypt. They enjoyed being there and they did not want to leave. But remember, the promise of God is that he would bring them to the land of Canaan, to the land of promise, and he would bless them there and he would give them the land so they cannot stay in Egypt. Or God can't fulfill, out, fulfill, fulfill his promise. He can't fulfill his will. So isn't it true of any one of us that when things are going well and we are prospering, we want to hang around. We, we want to ride the wave, baby. But what happens when we get to the place of prosperity? course we tend to forget what god wants us to do we we tend to forget the plan of god and the promises of god and we start making excuses why we haven't been around and faithful to the lord and to his word see that's what prosperity does that's what materialism does it makes us comfortable and mushy spiritually not strong, mushy. We're pushovers. The king stands up and says, listen, if you don't do this, you're getting killed. Oh, we'll do anything you want. That's not what they did. They stood up to the king because they knew what the king of heaven said. So just think for a moment. Before you became a Christian, when things were going well, and you were prospering, you didn't think about God. I didn't think about God. You didn't think about your eternal soul. You thought about, what good time could I have? How can I get the best, most amount of pleasure on this side of eternity? You were enjoying the land of the walking dead. So was I. You were enjoying the good things that have come from the common grace of God. You were enjoying the food and and the drink, and the partying, and the indulging of the flesh, of all kinds of pleasure. You were saying to yourself, and hey, life's pretty good. Living in America, and no matter what social stratus you're in, life is pretty good. Even now it's pretty good with this fallout, and that fallout, and this going on, and that going on. We still are prosperous. See, it is not until God disturbs you It's not until God frustrates your plans. It's not until you suffer often persecutions and trials. It is when God ordains the circumstances to get you to long for Him. Because other than that, you and I would not. We do not seek God. Not the God of the Bible. Not the God who created the heaven and the earth. We do not seek God unless God intervenes unless God does something. Do we ever get moving? Do we ever seek salvation? Not until God Almighty disturbs our soul and disturbs our comfort zone. That's when we get moving. That's when we start realizing what God is doing and we start asking the right questions. So how does God disturb us? Well, you know what he did with them? He allowed a king to rise up who knew nothing about Joseph. 
nothing about Joseph's faith. Then he, he probably knew nothing about everything that went before Joseph. He didn't even care about that. All that he wanted to know is how can we use these people who are multiplying faster than we want them to as slaves to make us wealthier. That's what they, he was thinking. Giving their infants over to exposure, leaving them outside in the elements until they die was pretty extreme. So what was God doing? This is what he was doing. He was making them unhappy. So they would want to get out of Egypt, get out from under bondage. The bondage that Pharaoh put them under. He was also disturbing Pharaoh. In order for him to despise the children of Israel and rid them from his kingdom. So God had to change the heart of Pharaoh. He had to change the heart of the children of Israel. And he had to change the heart of Moses. He had to do that to accomplish his will, to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He has to do that. He has to disturb you and I. He has to cause us to be restless in our souls. He has to cause us to start fearing where we're going to go when we die. We have to start thinking like that. God does that. And thank the Lord he does. Because if he didn't, you and I would sit back on our easy chairs with our tropical drink and just enjoy life. Thank the Lord he disturbs us. I praise him for that. So it looks like God's people, at least in Egypt, were doomed. Even on their way to extinction. And then right at the right moment, at the right time, what does God do? He provides a deliverer. So there's, there's a fundamental principle that we all must learn if anyone... If anyone is to be saved and be made right with God, is if anyone is going to grow spiritually and become a person of enduring faith, then they must remember the matter of divine disturbance. Some of the Puritans talked about it like that. What do you think, brethren? If God is going to set his heart upon you, what do you think he's going to do? Will he not choose to take away, take away from you and I everything that is keeping you from him? Will he not choose to make things uneasy and uncertain and insecure so you will begin to ask the right questions? And sometimes, literally, he may cause you to lose your money. He may cause you to lose your health. He may cause you to lose a secure job. Sometimes he may even take a spouse or a child. He may say, send trouble upon trouble into your life. That is the matter of divine disturbance to get your attention, to get my attention. 
But the main reason that God will ever allow these things to be brought upon you and I is to make you and I low and unhappy. It is never for your destruction. It is always for your good. It is always for His glory. Always for His glory. Because once He removes from you and I those things that keep us from Him, then deliverance is at hand. Then we're ready to be saved. Then we're asking the right and we're seeking the right way. That's what we see in our text. That's what we see here. And that's the background of where I'm going now. So, if we're going to fear God, if we're going to make the right choices, then our heart has to be changed. Just like the people of Israel, just like Pharaoh's, just like Moses' heart, our heart has to be changed too. So there is a second thing that we learn from enduring faith. And it's not, it's this, that a faith that endures chooses more wisely. Now, let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, and I think I'll stay there for the rest of the time. Hebrews 11, and here it says in verse 24, By faith Moses... We had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, we have Moses pictured here as grown up. It says in verse Number 24, by faith, when he was grown up, he was grown up. That means at this point, he was 40 years old. He was making choices based on experience, based on wisdom, based on empirical data. In other words, Moses saw what was happening around him. He knew he needed to make a choice. The book of Acts gives us a peek into the first 40 years. Don't turn there. Just listen to what it says. It says in Acts 7, But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren. Remember, Moses is really what? Not Egyptian. He's Jewish. He's finding this out. He's seeing how the Egyptians are oppressing his own people. And God is putting into his mind, it says in Acts, to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And then it says, And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him, took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. That's what he did. And, of course, he killed them, buried him in the sand. He didn't think anybody was looking, but somebody was looking. But listen to what it says in Acts. It says, And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. So God was already showing Moses that he was going to be the one that does something about God's people's problem. But they didn't understand that. The people weren't getting that. They weren't looking at Moses and saying, you're the one. Because to them, Moses was an Egyptian in the highest level of government in Egypt. How could you help us? Why would you want to leave where you're at to help us? 
We're persecuted, lowly people. We're stinking slaves. So it didn't enter their mind at that time. But he could no longer stay neutral. He had to pick what people he was going to side with. The Egyptians or Israel. There could be no fence straddling for him. He must flat out deny one or the other. But look what it says in verse number 24. It says, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused something. So you know what he did here? He actually made a decisive choice. It means to deny, to renounce a thing, to refuse something offered. His choice to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter would mean a break with the family that schooled him, that raised him. Don't forget, 39 years and 9 months, Pharaoh's daughter raised him and was, had, had a great influence in his life. It says in, in Acts, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. She loved him. She had a good relationship with him. But Moses would have to make a choice. He would have to refuse his high position, his power, his honor, his wealth, his privilege. And of course, the prerogative of being in the royal family of Pharaoh. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. It would be crazy to leave Egypt and forsake those Egyptians for these slaves. Doesn't make any sense. But you know what? God was already stirring his heart. He was always moving inside of him. He was changing his volition, his will. That's what God does, you know. Biblical faith changes your will. It causes you to go not in the direction you want to go, but into God's direction. And for that to happen, things radically go on inside your heart. The Spirit of God doesn't leave you alone. He begins to show you how wicked you are. He begins to show you how wrong you've been. He begins to show you how you treated the God of heaven and the God who now has become or is ready to become your Lord and your Savior. He shows you how you despised the cross and thought the message to be foolish. That how can anybody be saved by that? See, God does something. He changes your will, and he's doing the same for Moses. Look at verse 25 of chapter 11. This is what he does. Matter of fact, you can see this is a heart-wrenching choice, choice in which Moses' will, his mind, and his focus would need to be radically changed. Verse 25, here's his will being changed. Choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So he was choosing. The Egyptians were not the people of God. The Egyptians were godless. They were idolaters. They were a nation without a true God. They were a, God, a nation with many gods. Now Moses knows that. Now Moses realizes it. 
So, see, the Israelites were the people of God. They were the people of promise. They were the people chosen. So what did he choose? In verse 25, he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. It means to be treated ill with another, with a group, not alone, with a group. He chose to get in there with the people of slavery and suffer what they were suffering. Not suffer as one who had privilege, but suffered as one who who shoved it all aside and went in there and actually was mistreated with them. He chose the base treatment with the Israelites because they were God's people. If you look down at verse 37 of Hebrews 11, it gives you some sense of some of the suffering of the mistreatment. In verse 11, 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Those are the people that Moses got in there with. So Moses never thought, which is amazing to me when I was studying this passage, he never thought that to retain his high position, his power, his honor, his wealth, and his privilege, and his prerogative to be, be part of the royal family of Pharaoh, to be an advantage. We think like this, hey, I got all this power, all this ability, boy, that's an advantage to do great things. No, that's not a great advantage. That could be a great noose, a millstone around your neck. It had to be a clear cut. And so that's what he did. So Moses never thought that was an advantage. Instead, he chose to turn his back on all of it. But in choosing one thing, what happens? Verse 25, you have to deny yourself another thing. Look what it says. He denied himself to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The very word used here means pleasure based upon the satisfaction of one's desires. Well, that's how we lived all the time. We know, we know all about that, don't we? My passions and desires, I want them to be fed. I want, them, I want pleasure, man. We're all hedonists. We want pleasure. We don't want pain and suffering. We want everything to be nice and smooth. No ruffles. No troubles. See, the pleasures set before Moses were not only fleeting, because remember, sin is fleeting. The pleasure of sin is short-lived. It's not eternal. It's short-lived. And is there pleasure in sin? Absolutely. But it's going to be short-lived. And he's really, from here, we see that it's not only fleeting, but it's sinful. See, that's what we usually choose. We live for the moment. We live for the pleasure not considering that the pleasure of sin is only temporary and always, always comes with a consequence. Both temporal consequences and eternal. And then there's God's judgment. See, only fools live lives of pleasure denying or ignoring the reality of death and judgment only fools live that way i heard someone say i don't know who they said that sin will keep you longer than you want to stay 
take you further than you want to go and make you pay more than you want to pay. And it's true. It's a good sermon outline. But for Moses, his sin would have been apostasy. His sin would be the disowning of the people of God for the purpose of enjoying the privileges of high position of the short-lived grandeur of Pharaoh's palaces and courts. That means that Moses would have placed himself outside the purposes of God. But that's not going to happen. By faith... Moses, as well as you and I, can make choices not on the things that please ourselves, but on that which pleases God, exalts Christ, and helps our brethren. And that's what real faith will take you. That's where enduring faith will take you. It'll take you right there. So don't commit the sin Moses would commit and apostatize and leave once you know the truth. See, the faith that is given to us by God is the faith that moves the will. But it also does something else. It changes the mind. Look what it says in verse 26. In the middle of the verse, it says, considering, you see that word there? Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of of Egypt. That word considering is a word that means to think deeply, to examine, to compare. And what is he comparing? He's comparing Christ and the riches that goes with Christ with the riches that he ha- he's known in Egypt. And of course, Egypt is a picture of the world, right? It's a picture of what we have available to us. It's a picture for all of us to know that, listen, there's a comparison to be made. We need to think about it. What do we want? Do we want to live for ourselves? Do we want to live for pleasure? Do we want to live for our own goals, which is going to lead us to a dead end and into hell? Or are we going to live for Christ? That's always the question. A mind that thinks spiritually. A mind that considers God's plan of deliverance and salvation, not just for the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt, but Moses would actually be a picture of the one who would come after him and would be the greatest of all deliverers because the one who would come after him will be a spiritual deliverer. And we know the greater than Moses is who? Christ. We already dealt with that in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. So Moses is choosing hardship. was actually a foreshadowing of the perfecter of faith. Because what does it say in Hebrews 12, 12, or 12, verse 2? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? Endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he did. So it is through the suffering that Jesus Christ redeems and delivers his people from the spiritual bondage of sin. So his mind pondered the eternal plan of God 
spiritual deliverance through the suffering of Messiah. How much did Moses know about Christ? It seems like way more than anybody ever gave him credit about in Scripture. Because that's, this is what, you can't get around what it says in the Scripture. Considering the reproach of Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ is all the shame that was piled on Christ leading up to the death, his death on the cross as a crucified criminal. Hebrews later on is going to refer to it as in this way in Hebrews 13, 13. So let us go out to him outside the camp. The Lord had to be crucified outside of Jerusalem because his death was actually a defilement because he was crucified as a criminal, as someone who was guilty, but he, before God, was dying for sinners. But it says this, outside the camp, bearing his reproach, whoever comes into contact with Christ by true faith must bear his part of the reproach. If our Lord suffered, we will suffer in some way, too, we will bear some of the stigma that goes along with being a Christian. It tells us in, in, in Luke, So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his possessions. And then Philippians tells us, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, when, when you gain Christ, everything else that anybody could offer you is just a pile of dung. That's what Paul said. Rubbish means scuba. It means, you know, stuff that goes in the pots that are, are unworthy vessels. You know, the stuff you go to the bathroom in. He says everything else is a pile of dung compared to what I gain in Christ. Why would I want to make that switch? See, it's foolish. It's absurd to even think of it. This is what's, what's going on in Moses. So see, the question is, what or who is of greater value? The treasure of the world or the treasure of Christ? When the exceeding great treasure of Egypt is placed along the loss suffered in reproach for Christ's sake, according to Moses constituted an infinitely greater treasure. Moses was driven by the conviction of a greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, and he knew the wealth of Egypt better than anybody. He knew the power of Egypt. He knew the power of temptation to stay in that position. He knew that. And he also knew that people depended on Egypt to get their needs met and far beyond that. And he's realizing now that they're all fleeting. All that they offer is a passing time of sinful pleasure. That's it. So by faith, 
Moses came to realize that abuse suffered for Christ was of greater value eternally than anything this world could ever offer him. So the faith that is given to us by God is a faith that not only moves our will, but it changes our mind about God's plan. And there's a third thing he mentions here. It it also is a, a faith that fixes our eyes on the right thing. Look what it says in verse 26. The last part of the verse, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Actually, it means to turn the eyes away from one thing to another thing, but then to look at that thing with a steadfast mental gaze. Moses turned his gaze away from the present suffering to what was heavenly and what was lasting and what was true. It even uses an imperfect verb that emphasizes the continual action in the past time. In other words, Moses, once he looked at Christ, he never took his eyes off of him. He never looked back. He understood the difference. But he knew it would take it's, it's like an artist fixing his attention on the object he is reproducing, whether in a painting or a sculpture. He has to look intently at it to get it right, to get the details. If you're going to be a master, you have to get the details. See, that's what he did. And if you remember, if you have that good of a memory, back when I was in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 34, when the believers looked at past sufferings more closely, six things became evident so as they gained something being the Lord's children, that they gained something greater in their suffering. And the sixth thing gained, this is what it was, promise of heavenly realities. It says in verse 34, chapter 10, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. So, This knowing is to know positively. So, you see, if you think seriously about what you have gained by being in Christ, you will conclude that it would be utterly foolish to throw away so precious and so valuable a gift as salvation. How shall we neglect so great a salvation right and if you are a believer and you know christ is your savior you know this to be true and you know that listen you get tempted i get tempted every single day to forsake christ you get tempted every day to listen go get the pleasures of the world baby you and I get tempted, we get slaughtered almost with temptation. But someone who's growing in enduring faith says, nope, sorry, I don't want it. Because all my pleasure, all my fulfillment 
is found in Christ. That's why I live. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. To die is gain because then I'll be in the presence of Christ and I'll be removed from this world. See, that's the way we must think. That's the way we must live. That's enduring faith. And you know what? When you have that kind of faith, nobody's going to push you around. No government authority is going to cause you to flinch. You're going to stand on the Word of God. And you're going to know that Christ delivers from spiritual bondage of sin and gives eternal life, and no one else could do that. So we choose more wisely, by faith, when God moves our will and changes our mind and fixes our eyes upon our lasting reward. And ultimately, remember, our reward is God himself. How could he compare with anything else? He cannot. He cannot. See, we must have a high view of God. And if we have a high view of God, then we'll believe that the word of God is sufficient for all life and godliness. We will have a correct view of man. We will have a correct view of what the church ought to be doing and what leadership in the church ought to be doing when we have a high view of God. When we don't have a high view of God, and we bring God down to notches, you bring, we bring him right down to our level, then God becomes just like us. And then it becomes idolatry, not God. Not the God of the Bible. Right? Don't let that happen. The church ought to never let that happen. So whom are you living for? The world? Yourself? Or are you living for the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you have enduring faith works that proves that? Do you? So today, there, you may have to make a decision today to come to Christ. If you don't know Christ, it's time to come to Christ. If you are a believer and you've been riding the fence, you've been doing your own thing, having Christ too, add on, you may need to come and get saved also. Today, you may need to just throw yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, take me as your servant and use me. Whatever you want. Because you're my Lord. Whatever it is, do it. Do it. And believe me, God will never disappoint you. We will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the word of God. Lord, you have been to me a great Lord and Savior. You have placed upon my own life many trials and tribulations. But Lord, you have been found faithful. I've known your love. I've known your compassion. I know when you take a hold on me when I wanted to leave and do my own thing. I know when sin was so strong, temptation so strong, and yet your spirit was stronger. Lord, your word 
has been a mighty tower. Thank you, Lord, for the faith that you give us. It is not a human faith. It is very uncommon faith. It's a faith that only can come from God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would build us. Make us strong. Help us to see what you're doing in our own lives. And, Lord, use us. With the time we have left, use us. That we not waste the space on this earth. But we would use it for your glory. And so, Lord, this morning, whatever choices people have to make, move them to make a choice according to your will. Convict them of their sin and their unrighteousness that they may realize they're under your wrath and the only way they can be removed is by Christ. Oh, Lord, please strengthen those who are weak in faith. Embolden those, Lord, who need it as they face great trials. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the things you're already going to do. Make us a people of God that make a difference on this side of eternity. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, take a...